Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. This week is our second installment of our collaborative series in partnership with Free the Work, which is a curated talent discovery service of underrepresented creators. Free the Work is a nonprofit founded by Alma Harrell, whom we recently interviewed. Check out their new platform at freethework.com. For our second episode of this series, we interviewed Minhal Beg, writer-director of Hala. Hala is her debut feature film, and it's about a Muslim teenager coping with the unraveling of her family as she comes into her own. It premiered in the U.S. Dramatic Competition at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival, which we had the chance to see. We really enjoyed talking to her about her process and the film. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we always start at the beginning. Um, We would love to know if you always knew you wanted to be a filmmaker, and how did you find your way into filmmaking? I think that I'd always grown up watching movies, and I felt like I didn't really understand how they were made. Um, They felt really sort of out of reach in a way, like in terms of like, different kinds of mediums and art forms like I could get my head around painting and uh photography like that made sense but for for whatever reason movies always felt like incredibly constructed and it almost seemed like there were thousands of people working on it and that is true on larger (laughs) movies um so I grew up watching movies and I love movies um my dad Uh, introduced me to a lot of movies from the 50s and 60s which at the time I didn't really appreciate and then as I got older I started watching them on my own like my dad made me watch like The Bridge Over River Kwai and uh, The Great Escape and A Dry White Season and these were some of his favorite films uh, just of all time and I think I was too young at the time to appreciate them Um, and then I went to college and I started taking film classes film was not a major uh, that I was like interested in pursuing partly because it felt like again it was the f- the major that was in the way it was constructed it was more about critical theory and it was less about the making of movies um, there was not a formal production track and so I always found myself drawing and writing and those were like two tracks for me like that felt over like always running parallel in my life like even at a young age, I was writing fan fiction of my favorite TV shows um, and putting it into little composition notebooks. Or eventually, when fanfiction.net became a thing, I like would put them up on there. Um, or I was like on LiveJournal, and we would do like trade uh, fic trades uh, where you were part of a group of a fandom, right? And there were a lot of like women specifically who were writing fics and like trading them. And that was kind of like how I started, was always writing about the shows that I liked and then writing fan fiction. Um, and then the drawing and turned into painting. And so I, my major in college was actually art. I was studying uh, traditional oil painting for three years. And I never really saw these things as related in some way, like that painting would lead to filmmaking. But I knew that I was starting to think 
in a visual language. Like, I just think it's, like, a different way of, like, words are very, you know, I think writing and painting felt like very different parts of my brain. And it wasn't until after I graduated, um, I started writing a couple of screenplays just as an exercise, because I had written plays before. Um, and I had had amazing playwriting professors. But it, again, never really seemed like something that was doable. It always felt like really out of reach. It felt like you needed a lot of people to do it. You needed to like convince other people to work with you. And it felt like such an ordeal. Like Whereas with painting, it was just you and the canvas. Or if it was writing, it was like you and the page, you know? And that felt very, like that all felt very like accessible to me. Um, but then I think it was, you know, it was, I think it was either 2014 or 2015. Um, I was listening to this keynote uh, that Mark Duplass gave at South by Southwest. And he said something which I'd heard before, but I had never heard put in this way, which was, uh, he says, the, ca- the cavalry isn't coming. And that was like a wake-up call. Like, it was just look, if you want to tell these stories in this way, like, there's no one that's going to knock on your door and give you the opportunity. It's just not going to happen. And that made sense to me, too, because in painting, you're making the paintings. It's not like someone comes, knocks on your door, and is like, hey, can you make a painting? Yeah. <laughs> Here's uh, $500 for all the materials for yeah, your painting. Right. Or in the same way with writing, you know. Um, and so it was after that, and it was after, you know, I'd been working as an assistant at a talent agency for a little while. And I realized I don't want to be here. <laughs> and it was like you always you like I would always enter jobs with like exit strategies of like how do I get out of here while also like maintaining my creativity and being able to write stories and you know without my soul being crushed. And then um I think it was that listening to him talk about how you just have to make your own things and you have to make them small, you have to start from nothing almost. Um because there was such a, you know, there was such another path of, like, writing spec screenplays and, like, getting them made at a studio level, and that felt very, like, very much like the lottery to me. Like, that doesn't seem like a realistic path. I'm sure it works for some people, but it just didn't really... I could never square away, like, the idea of even writing something you love so much and just giving it away <laughs> to a studio, especially if it's something deeply personal like Hala was. Um, and so it was, you know, th- it was that, and realizing, like, for me the visual part the the way the visual thinking of painting combining that with what i love so much about storytelling and like in writing and film felt much more accessible than both of them in a way like i'd spent a lot of time in new york uh going to galleries and and looking at, at paintings and participating in that world as much as i could as a student you know and i think i saw it as a world where you had to have a lot of pre-existing knowledge about art to be able to really get the full experience. Or with books, it was like a lot of people self-selecting a book because it's something it's by an author they've already read, it's in a genre they've already read, whereas I felt like movies had this ability to sort of transcend that a little bit because you could kind of invite people into a world where they don't need any pre-existing knowledge. They don't even need to have watched other movies at all. Um... And there's, like, a visual language that's, like, very universal and communicative and can transcend cultures and borders, and I thought that's really exciting. Because I, I remembered 
the stories that I was most excited about when I was a kid. There were two really seminal movies. Um, one of them was Jurassic Park, which was the first American film I saw in theaters ever. Um, and that blew my mind because it was with my entire family and none of them, uh, they, a lot of them like couldn't speak English or understand English, but they could still enjoy the movie. And then there was another film called Hamap Kehekan, which is a Bollywood movie that for whatever reason was playing at an American cinema near where I lived. And we all went there and we watched it and it was like such a breath of fresh air to watch something that kind of reminded you of home but also was like this incredible visual feast of a movie um and I remember those two movies very vividly like reenacting scenes from them um like the scene where they're stuck in the um the, the little cupboards like hiding from the raptors or like we would do that in our house and it reminded me that like movies have just this incredible like cultural impact too which I think I mean I think it's still it's still true that like you can find people um in countries all over the world where like they've watched the same movie as you and they would you would they would have no reason to other than it's just they watched it and they liked it um and that's kind of like all those things coming to a head where it was like leaving this job as a talent assistant uh realizing like nobody's going to give me permission to do the things that I want to do I have to make it myself there's a story that I really care about um from my childhood that I really want to write and I want to make it um and all of that was like just driving me to writing the feature script and writing the writing the short script and then making the short film and yeah, that's how it happened. It wow. wasn't. It wasn't a plan necessarily. Like I think I had always, for a long time, it was just enough to make kala, and then whatever happened next was sort of like up in the air. Like it wasn't. I think I wasn't so much interested in being a filmmaker as I was interested in telling a story I cared about. And Hala was like the first thing where I really felt like, okay, I'm gonna lay lay down all, everything I have for it, um, and it's gonna take me a long time to do it, but that's that's what it means to me and hopefully it'll mean that much to other people yeah that's incredible yeah a lot of what you're saying is resonating about like filmmaking being the intersection of so many different um art forms essentially and then also like the next level like collaborating with so many different people um so a lot of that yeah I also feel like I I if I recall correctly that quote by Mark Duplass it's not only like um the cavalry isn't coming, but there is no cavalry. Yeah, exactly. Just, there <laughs> there's is no none. such thing. Yeah. And so then it's like, okay, now what do you do? Like there, there just isn't. So you have to make your own, make your own cavalry. Yeah. You have to be, well, first you have to be your own cavalry mm-hmm. and then you have to like enlist other people exactly. um, to yeah. believe in what you're believing and then help each other mm-hmm. to get to where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what you're talking about with like, with your family watching the film and maybe not necessarily speaking English, but watching an English film, like, I think that speaks also to the universality of, like, human emotion, which I think is also the core of filmmaking and what you're speaking to, like, yeah, you don't need to have previous knowledge of a book or an art form, like, you, if you watch a movie, you know it because you know humans, because you're human, like, that, I think that was... Yeah, that's the starting part for, starting point for movies. I think for art, it was more that, when I studied art, mm-hmm. it was I would go back into museums and I'm like, oh wow, I get so much more now than yeah. I ever did when I was just like younger. And I would go to the you know yeah. uh, the art institute and I would just like walk around and I could enjoy the art. But now it was like, whoa, this is next level. Mm-hmm. But that was also, I mean, it was amazing for me and ed- very edifying. But I also learned that there's like a layer that like people are not mm. 
they don't have access to because you need to be able to like study it. And yeah. I think with film, I think that's for sure also the case in movies. But I think you're not missing out in, on as much. You can um, still have an experience. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If yeah. You can have an incredible emotional experience. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I think about the way that I approached like post-war art when I was like a teenager. I didn't quite understand it. Like I, I can appreciate its technical qualities, but I was missing out on like its context and it was only when I read about it that I understood mm-hmm. that and then I could put those two pieces together and now I have a wholly new formed opinion about it but I think with movies you can study move you can study other movies and you could be like wow that was a great homage to that other film but you don't need it to have that emotional experience I mean I, in movies that are doing their job well I think like they're entertaining they're emotional they're you know, working on many different levels, but ultimately you're not having a lesser experience totally. um, by not having watched yeah. a ton of other movies before that one. Right. Awesome. So your feature film, Hala, started as a short film. We're curious if you could tell us a little bit more about the process of developing the short into the feature. Yeah. So I remember that it was, um, I believe it was 2012 that I was working as an assistant um, and I had heard about Whiplash. Whiplash made the blacklist, um, which is this annual end of the year list of most liked unproduced screenplays. Um, and I had sort of learned a little bit about how Damien had taken his short film and made a feature out of it. Um, and so I knew there was like a model of doing this and it wasn't just him. There were other filmmakers that have also done it, but he was just like the most immediate example. And I, knew that, okay, I have this feature um, that I really want to make, and so the short would be the proof of concept for it. I mean, the story actually, like, originated from, like, I moved back home. Um, My father passed away in 2013, and it was, like, I was home thinking I would be there for about a couple of months, and what turned, what went, (laughs) what started out as a couple of months turned into two years, and it was like two years of like living with my family, kind of reverting back to what it was like when I was 18 and hadn't left home for college yet. And a lot of the same familiar dynamics were playing out in my house. And we were all like, basically there was like the black hole of like grief. Like it kind of sucks you in. You can't, there's a, your house is in a time warp. Um, and like you just, there was a reordering of priorities. For me, it was before then, I was always just like, okay, I'm going to climb a ladder of like, <laughs> of like being an assistant and then I'll be a development executive and then I'll be a producer someday. Um, and then I threw all of that away and went back home was with my family and we started, we like went to therapy together once and (laughs) that therapy session was just like everything coming out in the most hilarious, tragic, um, just absurd way possible like four people in a room like laying out like 20 years of (laughs) grievances like unresolved yeah unresolved (laughs) and you know it was people storming out and you know I think that it made me realize like oh there's all these unspoken tensions in my house and my family um I had started writing these like vignettes from my childhood and that was the foundation of Hall of the Future it was just it was just me writing down experiences from my like being a kid um and then eventually it was like a collection of those became scenes and then the scenes 
became the screenplay and the first draft of the screenplay was like very removed from my own experience because I wanted it to not be about me I wanted it to be about a young woman who had some of this uh, some similar experiences but it was ultimately like not my story um and then you know the process of writing it was like was really long like I went I would wake up before the rest of my family go to Starbucks get a corner where there was an outlet and like good light um, set up and then I would write there and I would try to do that every day and then I would go home and then my family would be, you know have woken up and you know it was it was a long process of uh, writing but also hiding the movie for from them for a long for a while um, and they had no idea what I was working on I think they just thought I was like on the internet like playing games I don't know <laughs> doing, um, your, doing your fan fiction again <laughs> yeah exactly um, and then that script uh you know, I had a version of it that I liked. I set it in Chicago. It became, it started to hew closer and closer to the details of my life, mostly just because out of like, look, it's, it, I understand that world and it's very familiar to me and the, um, the texture is, is there. Um, and the North Star for the script was always like whether a scene or what a character said was emotionally true. It didn't have to be verbatim pulled from my life. It didn't have to be exactly as as how things would turn out if I was in that scene. It was just about, is this true in this moment for these people, this character, and the story? Um, so there was a script. Then, out of nowhere, in February of 2015, um, I got this email from this young woman who I'd met via Craigslist, and she offered me a place in her in her Koreatown apartment for $400 a month. And it was like a gift that had been sent down from, like, heaven or something. <laughs> because I, I, I'd been, you know, just felt like, okay, I have to write my way out of Chicago. I have to find some way to, like, make this movie. Um, but I have to get back to Los Angeles to do that and be around people who know how to make the things, to make them physically um and then her email came out like right at the time where I was like I'm ready I like I have a script that feels good to me um her email comes I agree I don't have like more than two thousand dollars in my bank account I decide to fly out um and then I write the short script uh in like a month and a month and a half while I'm there I get Originally, I submitted to, like, AFI's Directing Workshop for Women. Don't get into it. Um, I was briefly disappointed, but then I was like, okay, this can still work out for me. Like, what if I still get the AFI graduates to work on this project, even if it's outside of (laughs) the program? And then, so I just sent my script out to the same people. Like, usually the way it would work in DWW is that they're helping you sort of incubate the project, and they're helping, they're like working with the graduate students to work on your sets. So I I had a friend of mine who I'd interned with like a couple of years before who was in the program now as a director, sent him the short script and said, hey, I have a short script that I want to make. Um, I'm not in DWW, but I'd really like to find like a producer and a cinematographer and an editor, and it would be shooting this fall. Um, anyway, here's a script if you can circulate it. Then he did circulate it, and like 48 hours later, there were all these people who wanted to work on the project. And I told them up front, I was very upfront, like, look, this is not a money project. Like, I'm going to have to Kickstarter everything. Um, But what I can tell you is that there's a feature, and like, the goal is to like use the short film to make the feature. 
I think that really appealed to people that it was something that there was a plan for it. Um, and then I got my producers, got my cinematographer and editor all from AFI. Um, we raised like $35,000 that summer, um, mostly through the help of like Twitter and Facebook. Like I literally went through my entire friends list on Facebook, people I hadn't talked to in years. Like it was so embarrassing. And just messaging them and saying, hey, can you contribute? <laughs> I was that person in your inbox that was like, can you contribute $25 to my movie? Like, but I did it to everyone, like wow. every single person. There was like, I think 500 people on my friends list and I messaged every single one. And then if they said they wanted to contribute, I like put it on an Excel spreadsheet. And then from there, it was like $5,000, which was not good. Um, and then I went onto Twitter and I said, look, I have about $5,000 like committed, um, but we need 20-ish more. We blew through our like first like uh our like first funding goal in like two days wow and then the rest of the time we just kept raising more and more money and then it was like an incredible amount of money like for we shot like a little teaser in like a parking lot where we didn't have a permit we got kicked out of it it was super (laughs) embarrassing um we did all of like the rehearsals out of like my cinematographer's um apartment in Los Feliz I mean it was like so low budget and DIY and then we shot for five days um which is a lot of time now that I think about it for a short film (laughs) um I like relished that time like where you had five days to shoot a short short film um and it was amazing we got we were able to pay like an actual crew because we had money and um we shot it we edited it over Christmas break I remember it was a very fast turnaround. Um, and then we submitted to festivals. I think we submitted to like four or five festivals. We didn't get into any. <laughs> and then my producers suggested maybe we should continue submitting to other festivals and see where we would get in and kind of play it out. And I just said, no, let's put it on the internet. Let's just put... And this seems like an obvious thing to do now, but at the time I think the common knowledge and a lot of film school sort of parlance was like okay like you make a short film and you submit it to festivals and that's how it works and I just thought like I don't think that's the best way to share a movie like this like I think we should find places that will premiere it and highlight it so I like reached out to one of the video commissioners at at Nylon and he watched it the same day I sent it and he's like we'll put it on the front page we'll make it a big deal and then I was like okay that's perfect because that's exactly the audience that to whom we're targeting with our movie so it was nylon and then it was it was on Vimeo it was a staff pick and then it was on short of the week and boom and film shortage and then it was like staggered so I would like say and, and on, on nowness as well so like the first two weeks was nylon and the next two weeks was nowness and then I kind of each time the movie would get brought back up um, and get promoted again. And then it was like that for a couple of months. Um, So the short film was out there, and then there was a feature script that I'd written, and then I worked with my manager at the time, who I'd gotten through the Kickstarter campaign, um, 
we we packaged these things together and then we sent it out to financiers and producers and our hope was that someone would take a chance on the movie and want to make it um we got overwhelmingly rejected by everyone (laughs) um and then it was it was really disappointing um this was 2016 and i remember feeling like oh like i did the thing i did the short film made wrote, wrote the feature and no one wants to make it um or they wanted to make it for like three hundred thousand dollars and i felt like i don't think i can make the movie that i see in my head with that mon- amount of money so i was holding out for more then the script made the blacklist at the end in december of 2016 and then it kind of reached a new audience again it it finally got into the hands of like two assistants at WME who read it and they passed it up to their bosses and their bosses read it and then I was back in Chicago thinking okay like life's over for me like I need to find a new career like maybe it's not too late to start law school and then um got a call from WME that they wanted to talk to me about this movie so I flew back to Los Angeles and this was now 20 2017 and I was going to be there because I was doing a shadowing program, and that was going to pay for like a month of me being there. Um, it was a Ryan Murphy Half Foundation program. So I was there for that, and then I was also in town to take any meetings on the movie. And I went into, I went to, I went into WME, and they said, we think this project is really special. We can find the money for it. And I said, we already tried to do that, but good luck. And I really hope you do, because I, I still really want to make this movie. And then I think it was like midway through the directing program, got another call saying there's multiple, multiple people who want to finance it. You should meet all with all of them and then decide who you want to go with. <laughs> um, so I met with them over the course of a week. And then we found the we found the right people who wanted to finance the movie at the budget that we wanted. And at that point, Overbrook had already been involved with the project. They had read the script and they had really liked it. Jada had come on board as an executive producer, but we were still looking for financing for the movie. So we all like got together. We decided on the financier. Um, they were going to let us shoot in Chicago, which is where I wanted to shoot it. It wasn't going to be cast contingent, so we could cast whomever we wanted. Um, and the film would be, would have to shoot this year. So it was like 2017. So in the fall. Um, so then, yeah, we had the money for the movie and then it was a very fast track from the moment in which the financiers had agreed to come on. And then there was a summer where I was in soft, like soft prep for the film. Then we were in hard prep, um, for a couple of weeks and then we shot it very quickly and we were in post for not that long and then in post and we did sound and color and it was really really fast from the moment at which we were like on the ground in Chicago to when the film was like finished it felt like a blur like it went by so quickly wow. um, yeah what a story yeah wow yeah <laughs> what a saga a, really <laughs> there's, there's a lot of peace. there's I'm like skipping over the parts where like I lost faith and like was like yeah. thinking about maybe I need to go to law school or maybe I need to go back into journalism or I need to figure out how else to like function in this business maybe adjacent to it or um working on sets or doing other things and that that was a lot of it in between of like whenever there was like a milestone it was like preceded by like 
absolute dis- uh, despair and like <laughs> doubt and like feeling like okay I don't know that this is going to work out and like I should have like not just a plan B but like plan C and think about because like I had also learned like the the light like these movies take five to seven years and so you kind of have to be in it for the long haul and in it like while you're in it you have to be doing other things otherwise you would like lose your mind waiting around for people to say yes or say you know agree to green light your movie or green light your script or you know each of those things just it's a process and each stage it was like oh there's good news but the bad news is that you're gonna have to wait as all these people read it and all these financiers read it and then they have to get back to you and then life just marches on as all that is going on Wondering if you could talk a little bit about the casting process. So yeah. you cast Geraldine Viswanathan as Hala, which is a character that's loosely based on your life, or not so loosely maybe. What was that like, casting somebody kind of as you? And then also, how did you collaborate with her to, cl- to create the character of Hala? So Hala was always, um, it, it, was, it became a fiction. It was like, at first it started out from a very autobiographical place. But then at a certain point, it had to be, it had to be its own story and Hala had to be Hala. And so I had to sort of remove myself a little bit. Like I needed to be able to like have her flourish as her own person. And the movie was always going to hinge on this young woman who has a highly internal conflict. She is wrestling with, you know, her obligations to her family and to her culture and her faith while also like, you know, dealing with real feelings of desire and her own needs and wants. And I think she feels like she has to compartmentalize and these things can't exist next to each other. Um, And a lot of that in the movie, it's a struggle that's like, it's all internal and it has to be conveyed with real emotional depth. And the challenge was going to be finding someone who could do all of that at a young age and someone that you also want to root for. Because the character on paper was very self-serious. When Geraldine submitted her tape... um, it came through her agents. Like we had put out a casting call and we had a casting director, A.B. Kaufman in New York who had started the process of like looking. And I was watching a lot of tapes. And I think the thing that is really difficult is that you can find someone who like ticks off all the boxes, but the thing that they don't have is like kind of like a more intangible quality of charisma or character that you just can't quite put your finger on, but it's there. And I think it was when I watched Geraldine's tapes, it was immediately clear that she had that. She has a real lightness and a buoyancy. And I think part of it is, ha- or, you know, her having this comedic background and sort of bringing, it, you know, being able to make fun of herself, even as a character who's like very, very serious. I think on paper, Hala in my head was someone else, like just like the character herself as I looked I was like imagining her and then when Geraldine stepped into the story it felt like the character became something new and exciting and different in a way that I liked like I would like that she kind of surprised me and brought all these characteristics to Holly which I had not even originally intended she you know she and I um spent about a week in rehearsal prior to shooting the movie and that was a really critical time of going through the whole script, um, sort of really going through the scenes and understanding where Hala is psychologically. And for Geraldine, it was this opportunity to like really get into like the motivations behind Hala's decision making. And um, I find the rehearsal process very useful because 
for me, at least for this movie, it was uh, the one of the tools that I've like learned to use is to be able to like make myself emotionally accessible. Like I, you know, it's easier on a film where it's so much of me has been put into it, even though it's not my story. Um, so it was like offering things from my life and ex- my, you know experiences with my mom and my dad and what it was just like for me as a starting point for her to think about how she can sort of access that character. Geraldine has lived a very different life than Hala, um, but she knows what it's like to be between cultures. Um, she's Australian and she's Indian, um, and she's playing an American um, character in this movie um, who has Pakistani immigrant parents. So it's just this, it was this incredible... Um, like it was incredibly fortuitous that she wanted to play a character that was so different from herself. Cause I think she wanted to, because it was so challenging and so on the opposite end of the spectrum. But on this, the, on the other hand, it was like, there was something about hollow that she really related to and felt like was going to resonate with other young women. Um, and so, you know, that rehearsal process also included, um, Perby and Azad as well, who play her parents. And, you know, part of the movie is in a different language. And so we'd work together so that Geraldine knew exactly what they were saying, even though she didn't understand the language. So we'd rehearse first in English, the entire scene. We did the whole table read in English, and then we did it, you know, individually uh, with the family in Urdu. Um, so she had to start to understand, like, the cadences and, like, the flow of the scene even though she didn't speak the language. And the Perby and Azad would rehearse with her over the weekends and around shooting so that she felt very, very comfortable and she was never responding or reacting to my cues. She was always responding to what was happening in the scene, mm-hmm. which is actually really challenging yeah, when you yeah, don't no. know the language. Yeah. Um, wow. So like, she had to really work closely with them to sort of convey all that needed to be conveyed in, in a very naturalistic way. She and Perby and Azad all kind of felt like a family by the end of it because they spent so much time together. Um, and it was like, it's like the dream scenario where like the actors kind of start rehearsing without me. Like I, I, I was there in the beginning and I was with them individually. Like I would sit down with Perby and Azad and Geraldine and Jack all diff, you know, separately. And then they would go off and sort of pair up and do their scenes together. Um, and Geraldine is, you know, for her, it was like, a leading role in a, a, a dramatic leading part, which she hadn't done before in a movie where she was like number one on the call sheet. And it was like, a, it's a very steep learning curve because an independent film is shot so in many ways differently than a studio comedy. Like there isn't as much coverage in this movie, for example. Like oftentimes we would just do a scene in a one and that's it. And so it was in many ways more like theater. Um, so we, I would sort of like talk her through the scenes and say like, well, we're not going to cut in any of this. So you have to be in the character all the way through, even if the camera's not on you, because there won't be any edit points. Um, and I think that was new for her. And she, I, and also the fact that I really didn't like sharing like what the angles look like. I just told her to like be in the scene and don't worry so much about what we're doing. We're, we're going to react and respond to what you're doing in the scene and we'll make adjustments. But ultimately I wanted them to live in it and like not think so much about coverage and 
how are we going to cut like just what other ways the other ways in which we're going to cover the scene are they is the camera even on them in this moment um all of that I think was like new in some ways um but she really rose to the challenge and came in every day incredibly prepared and was like ready and we had we're shooting so much every single day like and some days we're shooting you know scenes from like the beginning middle and end of the movie all in one day and she just had to be ready to like sort of go through that process as one would in a film you know a schedule that was not like the one that we made where you had to like grow with the character she had to do all of that as you know oftentimes like within a scene sometimes um wow yeah it was a really emotional process to work with her i remember we were sitting inside you know together at sundance and we were both on the verge of tears because it was so much of ourselves was in it um like, it was hard to divert, divorce just like, oh, this is just a movie. Even for her, because I think it was, like, strange to see herself in this way that she's never played a character remotely like Holla before. Speaking of theater, the film references Ibsen's A Dollhouse. We thought that was a really fascinating and apt parallel story to mention, especially with Holla's mother's uh, storyline. And we're curious if you could tell us about the inspiration for using that text and, and where it came from. The, the book that they discuss in, or the play that they discuss in that classroom scene changed like <laughs> 20 different times because I was trying really hard for it to not be so on the nose. And I think the early versions, in an earlier draft, it was Lolita and it was like too much. And, you know, we kept changing it. And like, I kept wanting it to feel very left of what was going on in the movie. But then it just felt like, a scene where they're just talking about something that has nothing to do with what's going on and at the same time if it has to do too much with what's going on then it felt very coincidental um so then there was like there was basically two texts that we or two texts that are referenced that their work that they read in class one of them is war and peace which her father mentions earlier on and then later it's a doll's house and the doll's house sort of came about because i was thinking about plays that I actually remembered in <laughs> that reading in high school that like an actual high schooler would read and that had something you know had some commentary on marriage um and gender roles um but also not so much on like a young woman's coming of age because I think that that was already the movie and that text that they were reading had to like comment on something else like it it sort of clicked that that it had to be a doll's house because that scene had to be more about how Hala feels about her mom than about herself. And A Doll's House made a lot of sense because I was thinking a lot about what happened to Nora after the events of the play, and it was just like genuine questions of do we really feel like she sort of got away scot-free from the situation, what really happened to her in the moments, like even literally like a day after the play, like what what is it like now to have left a marriage and to be on your own, to be an individual, like, what does that really mean? Um, that, like, those questions were sort of, like, the things that I wanted Hala and her classmates to be discussing, but I wanted it to be more that Hala's approaching it as having a greater context for why it's difficult for Nora to leave, um, whereas some of her classmates would just be like, well, why doesn't she just leave? She could just do that if she wanted to. Um and that was going to be, like, the, the crux of, like, their discussion. And Hala has, like, a minor blow-up. Um, because 
I think that with many of these texts, like reading them, you sort of have sympathy toward characters in a different way. If you if you kind of feel like your own cultural background is in some ways like the same, um, even though uh, you know, like I think Hall is really much that really thinking about it as uh, from an outside perspective, someone could just say like Aram should leave a marriage where her husband is cheating on her. That should be obvious. But obviously, for her, what is more obvious is, like, she's a woman, an immigrant. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't have a college degree. She's all of the things in which um, Zahid brings up later when she is divorcing him. That's all true. Like, she hasn't been able to sort of be uh, independent. But by making this break, she has to sort of do all of those things. And it's it's going to be a challenge. It's not easy. Um and so that that's kind of why like we settled on a doll's house. It was also like the one thing, the one text that just didn't feel too on the nose for me in that moment because um, we went through a lot and it kept changing because all the dialogue had to change in the scene too. So everyone was like, "You need to decide <laughs> on what the scene is about because we can't film." five different versions. Hala was one of the first films acquired by Apple, which is very exciting and must have been super exciting for you. We're curious what that experience was like, and that happened at Sundance, and so kind of just in conjunction, what your whole Sundance experience was like. Well, we found out we got into Sundance really early. Like, in, I we found out in the summer of 2018. Yeah. Um, while I, I was in the writer's room for Rami while I got the call. And Kim Yutani had just... It was going to be her for the fe- first festival that she was programming. Um, we had... We just expected not to hear anything for a long time because, you know, in, at that stage, they haven't even received all the submissions, the deadlines in September. And so we just assumed we're going to find out probably October, November, sometime later in the year. But because we had submitted so early, um, I think there was, like, some anxiety of, like, okay, well, they know what the movie is, and they kind of have some idea of is it right for the festival or not. Um, But I was in the room on Rami, got a call from WME. They were representing the film for sales, and uh, they told me that, Kim had accepted the movie um, into the festival. They didn't know what section yet, but the movie was definitely accepted. Um, and so it was like a very like surreal experience because I think years before, I'd always imagined Sundance as being like this unreachable thing. Again, like movies being inaccessible, Sundance being this unreachable thing. Um, cause I went when I was a kid, I would like go to blockbusters and I would pick out movies that had the Sundance laurels on them. Cause I thought in my head that it meant something else. Like I thought, I didn't realize there was an actual festival. I just thought it was like a mark of quality. <laughs> and so I would go around just like being like, this went to Sundance. And my dad was like, what is that? And we'd watch these movies that had premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Um, so it was very surreal when we got in, and we were really excited, but we couldn't tell anyone for months. Oh, my God. We couldn't tell anyone <laughs> until they made the announcement. And I think that was, like, uh, they make their announcement pretty late. Yeah, like, like November. Yeah. 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 Um, so we, um, 
Yeah, we were just really silent about it for wow. a long time. Couldn't tell anyone. That was the hardest part, not being able to tell anyone and having it. Yeah, that's like yeah. torturous. It was really, it was bad because everyone would be like, so have you heard anything? Nah, I don't know. Right. And also because so many of my friends were also submitting to Sundance mm-hmm. and they hadn't found out. So we're, they were just like cautiously like, oh. you know, just super cautious <laughs> around each other because you don't know right. if they also found out, but they're not telling you. so it's like a double mind yeah like I remember being in a car with my friend Alice Waddington and she who had her film Paradise Souls play at Sundance as well and she was like so what did you hear I was like I don't know did you get it she's like well we haven't heard back yet and then a week later she's like yeah we got it I was like so you knew at that time you just were pretending not to know she's like you were also pretending Um, it was the Spider-Man meme we were at each other um yeah, then, okay, so we we had a lot, all this stuff to do. We had to get a publicist on board, and um, it was a lot of things which I was going through for the first time. We are like, okay, we have to make a plan for selling the movie. We went to Sundance. Um, we had a, an amazing time. Like, we had all this great press. Um, I think the movie was kind of like a more dark horse, underrated thing that wasn't, like on a lot of lists of like movies that will get into Sundance, which they always do, which I find very humorous. Um, because you literally find out not even a couple weeks later which which movies do get into Sundance. Um, so it was like we we were just hoping people will come to the premiere and like fall in love with the movie and it's going to, you know, it's uh, it's a very emotional film for so many of the people who made it. Um, we had our we had our premiere at uh, the library theater i believe um and we had a pack screening it was sold out everyone came like a bunch of the you know the crew was there too and the producers were there um and we played the movie i hadn't watched it through for a while and it was very hard to watch it not because it was a bad experience but because it was just like it was like so many years of my life culminating to that moment. Um, and it was like hard to reconcile like, oh, this is a part of my life that's now out in the world. Like we hadn't had a, a screening with that many people, you know, watching the movie. We had had small test screenings, but that was it. And so when people were laughing at parts, which I had ceased finding funny a long time ago, it felt very validating like oh there's that was a funny moment um and then the screening it, it was finished and there's this cliche of when directors have their movies at Sundance that they they say they have an out-of-body experience and I always thought that was hilarious and not real and then I did have the out-of-body experience I remember walking up and then I kind of felt like I blacked out or something like I don't it was like my heart was pounding and everyone was there and like the lights were too bright and I knew that the first thing I wanted to do was to thank everybody but also very very quickly call my mom and tell her that I made a movie and it was at Sundance so it was in that moment like it was literally not even an hour before where I called my sister and said like hey if you can just make sure mom is available at this time that's when the movie will be done and I'm gonna give her a call and she's like yeah okay we'll be ready because it'll be super embarrassing if I call her and she doesn't do that. <laughs> so I'm walking there walking up to the podium like oh my god I want to bail I want to bail so much and I'm like okay I'm committed I'm committed I have a phone it's like it's ready like it's in my pocket so I go up there give my thanks do the quick 
call to my mom. My mom picks up. Thank God. And she <laughs> is so confused. <laughs> She's so confused. And I tell her, um, I tell her, uh, I, I'm speaking in order to her now because she, she, that's what she speaks with me. And I told her, I made a movie and it said Sundance and all these people came to see it. Um, they want to say hi. So I turn around and I show, it's, it's a FaceTime and I show everyone in the audience and then I turn it back. And the first thing she says is, um, when are you coming back home to visit me? And I, I was just like so flabbergasted. Like I couldn't process the fact that this is like in public and like, I, I do want to tell my mom I'm going to visit her. I just don't know when, cause I'm in a job right now. Um, and we have I have a lot to, going on. I have to be in LA happening. for this job. So I'm like, okay, yes, yes, of course. And I'll like, see you soon. Okay. Bye. And then <laughs> I remember feeling like, oh my God, like I did like basically buy Felicia, my mom, which was like really hard. Um, and then we had a great Q and A, um, and then it was over. Like we literally, I remember like Geraldine and I couldn't sleep from the anxiety the previous night because it was just so much writing on selling the movie. Um, and then forty eight hours later, we had another screening, and we started to get an interest from several buyers. Um, but the buyer that was most sort of aggressive was Apple. And I hadn't met anyone from Apple before Sundance. I'd met all the distributors and most of their executives, but I had not met with Matt Dentler before, who's the head of original film. And then we had a meeting, and I didn't even know that Apple was buying movies. I didn't know <laughs> that they were in the business, this business. I didn't even know they acquired a documentary at Toronto uh, called The Elephant Queen, and that was part of their lineup. And he sat down, and he sort of pitched me on why Apple was was the right home for Hala. And there were a lot of things that sort of, that I was looking for in a partner, in a distribution partner, that Apple, they, they, they met and exceeded all those expectations. It was, okay, I want this movie to have a global reach, so I need to have a global release. And that was a really important part of it. I do want the film to be accessible to people in theaters if they want to see it and it was you know we're not going to do a wide release of the movie because that doesn't make sense for, it's not economically sensible but we are going to do a limited release so we can get people who want to like cinephiles and people who want to go to the theater to check out the movie that way if they want to so there was that and then there was this incredible passion for what the movie represented was you know of this young woman's coming of age that is very universal um or I'd, I'd hoped, you know, that was the point. Um, and Matt very much related to that story. And I think that it was, you know, of all of our options and sort of our, you know, I, it, the other buyers at the table, I had sort of had to look at everything and say, like, look, I want to take a risk on Apple because I think that at the very least I know that there will be a real curated release for this movie. Because, and and because I, I what I know about other specialty distributors is that it's really hard to stand out and for your movie to get a proper sort of rollout and proper marketing. And I think what excited me about Apple was that they weren't trying to do like fifty movies in a year. Like it was very much like a, we're we have a couple of movies and yours is going to be one of the first on the platform. Um, and I didn't even know what the platform looked like. 
I had no idea when it would come out. I had no idea how much it would cost. But it was all like a calculated risk of I'd rather take this chance on a distributor and a partner that really, really loves the movie and is going to give it the attention and care that it needs to succeed. And so had that meeting and then walked out and I thought, okay, I think it's Apple. And then called our sales team and said, I had a really good meeting and I think, I think it's it. And then it was done. And then on Monday when we had our third screening, we had some buyers who hadn't seen the film yet walking into the screening as the news broke that nope. Apple bought the movie. <laughs> so they were like literally walking in the movie for seemingly no reason. <laughs> um, they wanted to see the movie for sure, but I remember like seeing yeah. Ted, Hope, and Julie Rappaport like walking into the movie and I was like, Ooh, sorry, <laughs> it's already at Apple. Um, wow. Yeah, and it's been like this, it's been a really good experience to... I mean, with everything, it's like you're with a company that's doing this for the first time and learning together. And um, But, like, with the core of it, which draw, drew me to them in the first place, was, like, I feel like they really understand the movie. Um, and I think that's, like, most of what we want for as filmmakers is to have a partner who wants to give that release in a way that, like, speaks and preserves the spirit of what you made. Um, and hopefully with you know, the time and attention too, because there's other projects that every distributor has and they have to like make decisions, difficult decisions about when to release movies and how much money to put behind them. And I think with Apple, it was just very obvious that Hollywood get all of that. With every uh, interview, we end with our rapid response segment, three, two, one action. Uh, we'll start with three, your favorite or most influential film. Fish Tank by Andrew Arnold and Ratcatcher by Lynn Ramsey. Two, dream person you want to work with this is so hard because there's so many people but I think like somewhere in the top five it would be working with Viola Davis and Joaquin Phoenix one best advice you've ever received the cavalry isn't coming and action what are you most looking forward to right now the holidays (laughs) I'm so excited about the holidays um no I mean I'm actually I'm taking um I'm going up to Washington State for a week. Um, it's where my partner's family lives, and uh, they live in this little town called Blaine, Washington, which is right near the water and across the, uh, Vancouver. And it's this incredible, quiet, like, beautiful place with, like, no light pollution, traffic, and I sleep so well there. And I'm just excited to be in nature. And, you know, the I've written several drafts of projects while I've been away and I've, I often have to leave Los Angeles to finish a draft and I I'm on the verge of finishing one now and I, th- I think it's going to happen there so I'm, I'm excited to go and like and like kind of de unplug and like not use my phone as much and not use the internet and just write and take long walks and yeah I'm really excited about that sounds it. Amazing. I'm really excited <laughs> for Blaine Washington it's, it's amazing <laughs> And lastly, where can people follow you on Instagram, Twitter? So my Instagram is uh, just my first name and then my initial, the last last name's initial. So it's M-I-N-H-A-L-B. And then my Twitter is my first name, last name. So M-I-N-H-A-L-B-A-I-G. Um, though I'm not so much on Twitter anymore, except I post some things for the movie and uh, projects and sort of things like that. But I do respond to messages and though I'm more like on Instagram now um because I like pictures 
Um, and where can people follow the film? There's an Instagram account called Hala the Movie, H A L A T H E M O V I E. And then also information about the movie and its screenings. You can also find more info likely on the Apple accounts, the Apple TV accounts. Um, there's also a press page if people are interested in finding it's just looking at more info on the movie. Yay. Um, and when's it going to be out again? It is coming out in select theaters on November 22nd, and then it will be on streaming um, on the Apple TV Plus platform on December 6th. Awesome. Congrats. Yeah. Thank Thanks so guys. much for chatting with us. Thanks so much for having me. You can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos were created by Megan Cafferty. Elise Welch is our associate producer. And A Female Lens was created by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell.